Hello and welcome to the Wild Enrichment Podcast. My name is Kyle Banton-Jones and I'll be your host. The Wild Enrichment Podcast is a show about animal welfare, training, enrichment, and everything in between. Each episode, we will be exploring concepts surrounding behavioral husbandry and the ever-advancing field of animal welfare, from interviews with real animal care professionals to educational episodes about new concepts in animal care. This is the Wild Enrichment Podcast. Enjoy. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Wild Enrichment Podcast. Today, I'm uh, joined with a long overdue guest that we've been talking about it for a little while, uh, Peter Gilgem uh, from Zeus Benceful. I'm sure most of the listeners uh, have heard of Peter or have seen some of the awesome uh, content that he puts out around training. Uh, so, uh, Peter, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for being here. Thank you very much for having me, Kyle. It's, uh, it's It has been quite a while that we talked about this whole podcast thing, but yeah. here we are. Yeah, exactly. We, we've uh, talked uh, many times on social media, but never actually like somewhat face to face. So it's... Uh... It's uh, great, great to be chatting with you, and uh, we have a we have a lot of ground to cover with this podcast. So, you know, I, I think so too. I think so too. And I, you know, to be honest, on any podcast, like I'm very I'm very passionate about what I do, and I just you have to stop me sometimes because I will just rattle through. So you well, might have like ten episodes at the end or that's, something. That's all right. It's all right. I, I cleared my calendar. We got we got nothing going on for so we can uh, we can chat. But uh, so, you know, if anybody doesn't know who you are, do you want to give uh, people an idea of uh, sort of an overview of yourself, your career? I will. Yes, I will try to make it very little because like my, my co-worker, Grant Cawthor, who you also had on the, on the podcast, always says to me, well, Peter, you know what, if you do your intro, you probably need half an hour. So I will not <laughs> do this. I will keep it short. But um, no, I'm from the Netherlands and I started in 2005 with my zoo career in the almost the middle of the Netherlands at Auerhan Zoo. And that's where I worked with sea lions. But I, I basically, the interesting thing is, is that I told my mom back then, I said to her, I said, I want to work with dolphins and killer whales. That's what I want to do. So, and I ended up in, uh, in Auerhan Zoo through my practical training through school and everything. So eventually I ended up working there for five years. But in 2000, I remember 2008, I went to my first IMADA conference and um, like the, the outgoing person that I was, I went there, it was in Mexico, it was quite a nice place. So I, I went there and I went to any table, just introducing myself, whoever that person was. And I remember that I, I introduced myself eventually to the director of the zoological director of Cyril, Brad Andrews and stuff. But I did, I had no idea who he was. So I was like, okay. <laughs> There's a little boy coming in. So, and then from there, the interesting thing was I started to build my network very, very much. Every year I went to that conference. And then in 2010, I decided, you know, I want to work with dolphins. So I started to apply every six months to, I think, 50, 60 places around the world or something. And I just did it and did it. And I think that was since 2008, I already did this. And then in 2010, I got about four or five answers back. So it took me quite a while. Um, But... Then I ended up in Canada. So I worked at Marine and Canada for two years, and that was from 2010 till 2012. And the reason I had to stop there was because of my visa. Like I had a 25% chance that I could stay in Canada. Mm. So I was like, okay, that's a little bit, it's not yeah. so good. <laughs> I want to be sure. So, and there was this big rumble happening at, uh, at that time about the killer whales and stuff. And then Mike Bond, a very good friend of mine, he said to me, you know what? You know, I'm now working here in Laurel Park and uh, the, the, uh, the killer whales here or the orcas are from zero. 
And he said, you know what? They're looking for people here. So would you like to work with, with orcas? And I, was, and I was like, you know, I was jumping like a hole in the sky because I was like, oh my God, I'm reaching my, reaching my goal. Working first with the sea lions and the walruses in Canada with the dolphins and the belugas and stuff. All of a sudden I go back to Europe, back to, to Spain, working with the orcas. And that's actually where I worked with Morgan, Def Killawell. I learned so much about working with Killawells itself with orcas, but especially my training skills got a boost like crazy. Oh, yeah. And, you know, and especially working with an animal that's so challenging as well. So then I kept on going to that Aymada conference. And in that year, 2013, we actually presented about Morgan. And we won the People's Choice Award and we won the Second in Behavior Award and stuff. So it was, it was quite nice. But then I discovered that, you know, the orcas are my dream animals to work with. But the, the team is just not functioning well for me. Hmm. So and then I decided to leave. I said, I couldn't do this anymore. I asked the supervisor, hey, can I... Can I talk with you? He four times he said, no, I can't. We do that late. It happened, so I just quit my job. And then he told me, I remember he said, but I thought this was your dream. And I said, yes. And that's why I'm going to do it in Marineland, France instead. <laughs> so I was like, see you, buddy. He was like, all right. So then I went to Marineland in France and I worked there for a year. And I discovered France was just not for me. It, it was very like the animals were amazing. It was just such a strong group of, of orcas together. They had six back then, I think. It was so fantastic, but France was just not for me. So, and then uh, because I met Philip, and Philip used to work in uh, France, but he was from Sweden. And he started in Colmar way back in the day. And when I visited the guys in Sweden in 2009, Philip happened to be there. So that's where I met him. And then we stayed in contact. So, in um, then I met him in, at the Aymara conference in Aymara, sorry, in um, the Aymara conference in Miami. And uh, we had more contact, more contact. So eventually they were looking for somebody in Laurel Park to work with the orcas. And I said, I know somebody. So I, I got Philip to come over. Then I moved to France and I fixed the job for him there as well because he didn't really enjoy uh, Spain as well. So we went there. And then he got asked by Sweden again, hey, we're going into a reorganization with these dolphins and all that stuff. Do you want to come back? And this was, I remember, this was in the bar at like two in, two at night. So you, <laughs> you, the state we were in, let's not talk about that part. But he said to me, Peter, I need to tell you something. I said, sure. So and he, he said, hey, you know, I have a big plan going to Sweden. I've been asked and I would like you to join me to do the first SEAL program. I say, you know what? Sure. So and then we went, uh, we went there for an interview and stuff and then we got the job. So then we moved to Sweden in 2014. And that's when I worked there for six years. But I started as a marine mammal trainer, a senior marine mammal trainer there. I changed the whole first SEAL, SEAL show part, and it became like the most growing show that uh, that year, which was quite nice. Then they asked me, Peter, do you want to be the head of the Dolphinarium or do you want to be the training coordinator of the park? And then eventually I chose the training coordinator, and then I was just like smashing it through. And that's where these emergency recall stuff came up from mm. the lions, from the tigers, chimpanzees. You might have seen them all. Um, and then in 2015, I started my I started Zuspenseful, and that is basically a platform where I decided, you know, we're doing so many cool things with marine mammals. Why aren't we doing this with zoo animals? And why are we nonstop reinventing the wheel all the time? Yeah. Why do elephant people need to talk with elephant people? Why do lion people need to talk with lion people? But if you think about it, 
it's all behavior. So why can't a dolphin person not talk with an elephant person, an ape person not with a lion person? Because it doesn't matter. And then I discovered, this is just weird. So and then I wrote about it. I started my articles and my blogs and whatever without the idea to make this a business. I had no intention to make this a business. Then I got invited by an, uh, by the Scottish training something. I was like, sure, I'm going to talk there. And slowly started to work. I was like, okay, this is kind of funny. But And now we are here. So, and, and you know, the hardest thing was actually Corona. And basically, due to Corona, I lost my job in Sweden. I had a consult in Norway, which helped me out. But then two years later, so I worked back in a restaurant where I, back in the day when I was 16, worked. Mm. Worked at. I worked for two years and then I started to apply again because I saw that Burger Zoo here had a head keeper position. Dierberg Amersfoort, where I'm at right now, had a head keeper position. So the Burger Zoo one, I didn't get. I didn't get interview, nothing. Amersfoort got me an interview and then a second interview. And then they told me, we don't think that you will be fitting for this job. And I said, okay, that's unfortunate. He says, but I know who you are. I know what you, you do. I've seen what you've done. Um, I would like to give you a three-day job in our zoo as a training coordinator. Are you interested? I said, sure. And here we are. So that's kind of my my interest. Like, that's what I do, who I am, and what. I'm. Yeah, yeah. No, that, and that's a that's yeah. It's a very interesting journey. There's a ton uh, that I'd like to get into just in the sort of intro part. Uh, it seems like, uh, you know, I, I've interviewed a, a number and talked to a number of, you know, training consultants, and I'm sure that's sort of what you'd consider yourself to a certain uh, degree. And most of them come from that sort of marine marine mammal training background. And, mm -hmm. and uh, you know, is, is there sort of like big takeaways you had from your time as a marine mammal trainer that you'd like to talk to people about? And, and what is it about marine mammal training that you think sort of uh, you know, translates so well into other, you know, effective training programs? Well, the thing is with marine mammal training, it's just that, well, it started already in the 70s, or 60s even with Karen Pryor. It started there. And, you know, working with dolphins and, and orcas and stuff, it's the norm. It's the normal thing to do. If you don't train, it's weird. It's, huh? you don't? That's just strange. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the main reason is basically that especially from the medical standpoint, is, you know, you cannot sedate a dolphin. You cannot sedate the killer whale. You can't. There's no way. So you have to train them in a specific way. And then from all the theory that's out there and stuff, well, you know, it's just the normal thing you do. So, which is for me very interesting because in, in within the marine mammal world, that's just what you do. But then you go to the zoo world, it seems to be a luxury to train. It's like, it should be the normal thing. And that makes it so different. So when you come from the marine mammal world and then you see it, the, the zoos itself, don't get me wrong, and you have zoos that have sea lions who are also getting trained and stuff, or the, the elephants, it's also something like this. But they're like, okay, I started to have a thousand questions, which I didn't understand why it's not happening that way, mm -hmm. because it's so simple. You know, it's so easy. But um, I just think that especially with the marine mammals you have, like they're very intelligent. They are, you know, you can't sedate them or something. So you have problems there already. So you have to train them. It's for a seal or a sea lion, a 50% chance they will actually survive such a mm. sedation or stuff, you know. So there are reasons to it. Um, but, you know, I, I suppose that that's the reason why marine mammal training is such a, a big thing, you know, and we do a lot of research with them and so on. So... 
grabbing that part. That's why I was so surprised that when I get into the zoo, it's like, huh? Yeah. <laughs> What's going on here? Yeah. <laughs> but, no, I, I, yeah, no, I've totally found, and I think, you know, what you were saying with, um, you know, how, like, when you learn how to train one animal, like, it, you need to stop, like, trying to reinvent the wheel and just translate the skills that you learn from training one animal and apply that to another. And I think everybody has that sort of breakthrough moment at some point in their career when, you know, they're like, you know, I, I trained a, a cockatoo how to do this, and now I'm trying to train train a gibbon how to do this. And it's the same thing. Like, why am I, you know, going against the grain here when I can just, it's the same sort of steps. Obviously, you know, the way you're setting up the environment and, you know, maybe your first steps are different, but it's it's largely the same concepts that you're applying to both. That's That's basically what it is. You know, where it does become difficult, and that is when you have multiple animals or multiple species exhibit and stuff. You have to think a bit more creative, but at the end of the story, again, it's the same system. Yeah. It's just the same system, and that's the thing. And, you know, what I do see, especially with my consulting and stuff, is that a lot of people are very, like, overwhelmed in their position. So they have so many animals. They do not know mm -hmm. where to start. They do not know how to do it. They, they feel like they don't have the time to do it. They, you know, they're with, busy with so many things. So all you have to do is give them some guidance to walk their path where they're able to do it. And that are, there are actually ways of, of mm -hmm. doing it nicely. Uh, and that's what we see very much. But again, at the, at the end of the story, it's still operant conditioning. It's still working based on the positive reinforcement system. It's still working with antecedent arrangements and, you know, getting behavior coming back in the future. If it's a cockatoo, if it's, like you say, a gibbon, if it's an orca, if it's 10 dolphins, it does not matter. Mm -hmm. So it's at the end still the same. The only difference is, I think, and, and that's what I hear quite often, is, you know, you have to have quite a creative mind to solve the problems. So yeah. That's the... That's where it comes down to often. Mm -hmm. and, and that's why, you know, a lot of zoos have, you know, positions like like you're in right now and, and somebody to sort of coordinate. And because and, it's it's very easy. And this happens, you know, in, in every industry, including, you know, being a keeper, it, you sort of get uh, the tunnel vision and you, you can't. Right. It's very hard to take a step back and just look at the look, look at the problem as a whole and figure out how to approach it because a lot of the time it's way easier than you think and it's the same you know i deal a lot with enrichment and stuff and it's the same thing like people are like how could i possibly get this animal to perform this natural behavior with an enrichment device and then it, it's often the simplest enrichment device or the the simplest environmental change habitat uh you know addition something like that 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 gets you there and gets you there re repeatedly you know well, that, and that's exactly the thing. So when we, and now, you know, we are very much into, uh, like, I do not call myself a trainer anymore. I, I try to make it more sound like behavior modification because we're also, a, a lot of challenges are based on a poor enrichment program, not on training. So you can f solve a lot of problems if you only reach the behavioral needs through the enrichment you're applying. And if you do this, you don't have to train your hoof care. You don't have to train for all of that stuff. Mm. And, yeah. you know, and that's where often the thing is. So we're now very much talking about, you know, can we be proactive to what we see? Because we're talking a lot of times about we don't have time. We don't, we cannot do this. We cannot do that. It's like, okay, fine. I get it. You know, I, I've been in this business for a long time. I get that. But you're feeding your animals every day. You are 
passing that exhibit sometimes 10 times a day. Like I remember in Norway, they, so they told me, no, we don't have time for all of that. I was like, okay, wait, let's focus on foraging percentage. Let's yeah. only focus on foraging percentage. So then, you know, I said, how often do you pass the fellow deer exhibit? Well, yeah, quite often because the, the carnivores are all the way in the back and we have to go back. So, exactly. And that's a different department. So then you had the other department. They also pass that exhibit. So the only thing you guys have to do is bring a bucket of pellets, which you're going to feed them anyway. Mm -hmm. And instead of put it in their feeding troughs, you just scoop it. And while you drive, you throw it. You scoop it. While, and that's all you have to do because you're going to right, drive yeah. past anyway. Exactly. And then your uh, foraging time goes up. So you don't have to train them for hoof care to cut their hooves or whatever because that's what foraging does on its own. Mm -hmm. I think that those things, that's where we come from right now very, very much because that if you don't have time, you have to really focus on the fact what should you be working on then mm -hmm. if you have five minutes. And yeah. sometimes that is not training. Mm -hmm. And figuring out mm -hmm. the priorities as far as like, you know, is, is there an animal that's that's going to be shipped out soon, like that needs to get that crate training behavior? Is there going to be a knockdown sometime soon that they need to get injection trained? Like uh, f actually sitting down and prioritizing things as opposed to every keeper having their own little projects that they're sort of no one really knows like what the status of this this behavior is and what the status of that behavior is and 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 actually prioritizing can be uh, huge. It's the same with any, you know, behavioral husbandry program as a whole. It's, it's exactly that. And that's the whole point. And I remember when I was in, 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 uh, in Sweden, and that's where I really got in contact with the, 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 the no time point. Mm -hmm. That's all right. So I was at, 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 uh, at the facility, they had 28 chimpanzees in one big group. So it was, it was quite a big group. And that, that uh, facility also had like four gorillas and they had like, I think it was four gibbons to take care of. And they were only with three people max a day. It's like, okay, they told me we don't have time. It's like, okay, you know, let me first figure out how your day works. Let me go and see. And it took them about like 45 minutes to shift a group of chimpanzees somewhere. It's like, okay. So, and I told them, I said, I get it. I said, you know, you're with two, three people. 45 minutes it takes you to, sh to shift these chimpanzees. That's a lot of time you're throwing away. Mm -hmm. So I get the pressure. So, but... Then what if we start organizing how you time your, what you guys call feeding? Let's time it. Let's find out what we actually give and how we give it and when we give it. That's all we're going to do. So then luckily about six or seven chimpanzees left the zoo to go to, I think it was Guatemala or something. So we ended up with 21. Still a ton of chimpanzees, yeah. <laughs> I tell you. So then we decided, you know, let's train them. And the last time I was there, I just by accident happened to walk in because I had to ask a question to somebody not related to training, whatever. And I see them like preparing all this. And I say, what are you going to do? They say, oh, we, get, we have to get them in because we need to clean. I say, okay. So can I watch? They say, yeah, sure. You know, just stand there and say, all right. So I'm watching and I'm looking at my phone a little because normally it would take them about like whatever, like a couple of minutes to prepare and then, you know, do the whole thing. It's like, all right. So, and all of a sudden she comes to me, she says, all right, uh, um, what, what do you want? Uh, what, why, why are you here? Do you have questions? Do you need something from us or, or something? Or uh, are you guys done already? I say, yeah, yeah. I say, how long did that take? And I look and it took them about 20 seconds to get them all inside. It's like, mm. what? <laughs> that was the last time I was there. So imagine that they just won 44 minutes and 10 seconds mm -hmm. per person. 
And it's like, just like, okay, so if this is the case, then nine out of the 10 times, the problem also lies with, if you call animals to come in to do your enrichment or whatever, yeah, if you have to wait for your animals for half an hour, sure, yeah. you don't have time. I get it. Mm -hmm. It's simple stuff at the end. Yeah, and, and it, it's funny because uh, someone very early in my career like said, uh, you know, like you don't have time not to train. You know, when I, when I started hearing the whole, like, oh, you know, we don't have time to do this. We don't have time to do that. And it's like, you don't realize how much time can be wasted. And yeah, situations like that with an animal that's not reliably shifting, uh, with recalls, with all sorts of stuff like that, like those save, save you so much time out of your day when you're waiting. Nothing's worse than opening a door. And then you, you know, you get the whole like peeking in and it's just like, you're sitting there like waiting and waiting and wait, <laughs> like it's, it's, uh, you know, you, you don't want to have to deal with those kind of things. So the more, um, and, and the next topic I sort of wanted to talk about was cooperative care. And this is the sort of idea of getting the animal participating in its care. And you guys have a, a conference uh, about cooperative yeah. care. So do, do you want to sort of talk a little bit about cooperative care and where do you think it's going and all, all that sort of stuff? This is the thing. This is com coming back from the Marine Mammal World again. And, you know, uh, when, when I combined these two things, we just talk about no time and cooperative care and all that stuff. A lot of times we are choosing short-term solutions but those short-term solutions create long-term problems and then what we do is say yeah but now we can't okay sure sure now we can't but tomorrow you can't need it the day after you can't need it and now we have a problem now we have an animal that paces so much that it has a problem with its foot mm -hmm. now you have to train that animal to fix its foot where are you going to get that time now but if you just tried something before thinking about the future because that's what training is about, you wouldn't be in this position right now. Now, the, the, this is like where, where we are right now, but where this whole thing came from, it came out of the, the, the corona time for me. And, you know, within, again, the marine mammal world, and, and I'm not saying, you know, it's, it's, it's the place to be, that's where you learn training and all that stuff. I'm just saying, you know, they are just ahead of us. They're, in, in that sense, they're just ahead of a lot of things. So, you have like the marine world. You do train your dolphins because the, the one of the reasons is if they are sick, they will not show you this till they are so sick that they mm. just die. Yeah. So you can't really see. So any tiny behavior that you see, which is off the normal individual it is, you directly go and do all your tests. So you get your blood, you get your blowhole samples, you potentially get the pH out of their stomachs and whatever, but you have to train this. So... And to be able to do it like this, you actually can now save a life. You can be proactive to potential problems in the future. So then I'm looking into all this. And for the marine mammal world, this is the, this is the normal thing. That's just what you do. You know, that's just what you do. So then one thing triggered me extremely much. And I'm now still in Sweden. We have like nine first seals. One of them was Cleo, a 12-year-old South African female first seal. They told me she's a bit cuckoo. That's correct. So mm. it's a that's a label. Yeah. <laughs> Let me first check myself. <laughs> sure, she's different. Sure. And they told me she can't be in the show. She cannot do this. She cannot do that. At the end of the story, she was our show star. And then the thing was, eventually she she started to have issues. She started to have, you know, you saw her uh, getting like. A little weaker you saw her losing weight pretty quickly but we had no idea what was going on so we could do her 
uh, a blood sample and all those things. And, we, you know, she was very good in her medical stuff. We could tube her. We could do a lot of stuff. So then we wanted to do an ultrasound. So we did an ultrasound on her. The problem now was, you know, they had an ultrasound. It's great. They saw quite some things. But they didn't have a comparison to the healthy Cleo. So what did they do? They grabbed another individual who was 12 years older than Cleo. Let's look at her. And that was the comparison. And I'm standing there. This is ridiculous. This is just crazy. It's like comparing me to you. Mm-hmm. You know, it's weird. It's it's it, it's mad. Yeah. So it's not that humans are humans. We cannot say that. It's, it's, it's strange. <laughs> so I'm just looking at this and I'm like, all right. So unfortunately, we wanted to do an ultrasound on the chest and we wanted to do that the next day. And then that morning we found her dead. I was like, okay. So I was like, I was torn. My, my, like, I was so sad. And then that triggered me. I said, okay, this is ridiculous. We could have solved this problem. And we have to have a medical card of a healthy individual. And we should not wait till the animal is sick and then try to fix them. Because that doesn't make sense. Mm-hmm. It should be the same parameters within a healthy one. So when I get sick, we can compare it to themselves. Now, and that triggered me and said, okay, we should train all of our individuals to have actually a healthy animal's um, medical chart so we can compare to the same individual. And that's going to save us so many issues afterwards. So then we started to train. And at the end, of the, at the end we had all the first seals, the whole full body checks. We could do the, the x-rays. We could do the ultrasounds. We had, them, I think, like 75% did the blood samples already. We, we, you know, we... We did eye swaps. We did so much stuff just to get that medical thing ready. If they get sick, we have a comparison. Yeah. So that's what we started to do. So that's kind of where it came from in, in my in my brain. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, and, and that's that's great because you know, I, I talk all the time about like being proactive, especially with any sort of like welfare issues, because yeah, like as you said, like so often you know, the, the time that you set cameras up and start observing an animal intensely is like when they develop a stereotypy or something like that, that you're, that you're worried about or, or, you know, an injury or, or something mm-hmm. like that. And, and you always wish you're like, I wish I had a baseline to compare this to, like even from video footage, you know, there's, there's no sense in setting up video cameras and, and watching them do like a, uh, like when they're pacing or something like that. It's like, you wish you had more data before they started displaying this behavior because then you would have maybe gathered an insight as far as like what's what's making this happen and and what's what's the sort of development of this and and it's yeah it's exactly you know what you were just talking about it's you know it's i find it very difficult too and then you know the interesting thing is that especially now we're very busy with with this all of this whole you know stereotypy pacing and, and, and stuff but you know after this whole clear story, we started to work this more, think about this more. Now, well, there's a lot of foundation you need before you do your cooperative care, like coming in into a facility, coming to the trainer so I can work with my targets and stuff. So and in, in Sweden, we didn't really have a lot of cooperative care behaviors with our animals, except the elephants and with the, the chimpanzees. We had 21. So our goal there was, you know, can we train them all? Mm. And they wanted to do this. And they're like, yeah, well, you know, one animal trains very well and the other one is not at all. It's okay, so how long does it take before we can train them? So they said they tried it. And in two weeks' time, they trained each individual with some of them four sessions or something. I said, like, all right, cool. So the time I left, all animals could, like, do their hands. They were busy with their mouth, the whole body check stuff. So it was a massive change. But then 
I see the dog world and I see the horse world and I'm just like, mm. with all the respect, they're doing extremely well. It's super cool to watch. But I'm just watching this and I'm like, you guys are reinventing the wheel times 10. Oh, yeah. Like what we did with the dolphins back in the day, which started in the 60s or 70s already, you're trying to reinvent now. Yeah. You're trying to call this uh, force-free something, something. You're trying to call this liberty training. You're mm -hmm. trying to call this cooperative care methods, blah, blah. And I'm like, you know what? This is just weird. You see, this is just strange. We At the end of the story, we were working operant conditioning and we focus on positive reinforcement. That's what we do. Mm -hmm. That's what we do. But we are all calling it differently now. So now I was like, you know what? The dog people need to see what we're doing in the zoos. Yeah. The horse people need to see what we're doing with our zebras, with our giraffes, with our elephants. They need to see it. And that's when... The cooperative care conference was born mm. yeah no that's it's, it's all we've talked about both of those industries uh on this podcast before um uh amanda uh, gobel has a has really cool enriching equines i had her on and we talked i come from like a horse background that's where right. you know in, instead of uh training killer whales i was training uh, horses which is maybe less cool but what was enlightening was you know i had sort of the opposite uh, you know, you, you realize like, oh, wow, like look at all this stuff that marine mammal are doing. And, and when I was, when I was coming from a horse background to a zoo, I was like, what are, what are we thinking in the horse world? You know, and, and the same with the dog world, it, it's, uh, it's such a convoluted mess with training. It's even worse in the horse world, but the dog world, you're starting to see more positive reinforcement training and, and less shock collars and, and, and pro and all sorts of adversives and everything like that. And in the horse world, it's, it's still, it, it's, you know, a 90% you know, uh, uh, adversives and, and 10% positive reinforcement training, whereas, you know, m maybe dogs are a little bit different, but, um, yeah, it's, it's crazy to watch, uh, you know, coming from the horse background and, and always having to sort of like, quote unquote, like force horses onto trailers and, and all these things. And then watching at a zoo and someone just goes, you know, points to their camel and they give the command and the camel just walks on the trailer. And I was like, I was like, that's, that's crazy. I've been, I've been, you know, risking my life forcing horses to get on trailers my whole life. Like, what are, what are we doing? It's crazy, you know? <laughs> so it was wild to watch that. It, it, it is wild. And, you know, the, the cool thing was, and that is, like, so I'm not busy with this whole thing, and I think it was in 2018 or something, I started a bit of, like, coaching, like, one-to-one -one coaching and stuff, because, you know, I was, actually, it was 2020. Anyway, so I started to do this because I needed to have an income stream, you know, like Corona, I lost my job, I had to do stuff. And I'm, I'm meeting this lady. She was the very first person that got coached by me. And her name is Tessa. And I still have, I'm in contact with her. Fantastic person. And she, she said, Peter, can you explain to me how this works with marine mammals and zoos and whatever? And she was so flabbergasted about mm. how the dog world functions. And eventually she's telling me, how would you solve the specific challenges you came up with? So when I explained her how and what, she says, that's pretty simple. I say, yeah, that, that's how we think in that mm -hmm. area. Ah, so we basically think way too complicated. Say, I don't want to confirm this, but if you think that, sure. Then she says to me, Peter, look, I have about 20 chickens. Mm. I want to work these chickens the way you do in the zoo. It's like, all right. So... Like, how do we do this? So I was like, all right, so show me your setup. And I said, let's talk about what we do in the zoo and how you do it, and then you can change them. 
So then last year in Corporate Care Conference, she presented her, I presented together with her, but she presented her chicken program. And what has happened was she started to focus on the percentage of foraging. Now, chickens is very high. It's like mm. 95%. It's super, super high. And, you know, then you directly know that in many places that have chickens, they have a lot of issues. They have a lot of feather picking. They have, mm. you know, in some cases, cannibalism even. And there's a lot of issues with these chickens just because you did not reach that foraging time. So and she started to focus on, let me reach that goal. And she says, but you know what's the craziest thing? I'm doing this. And what I all of a sudden see is the roosters taking care of this group. There's a bird of prey flying over. The rooster runs around, gets all these hens under under the bush. They, they are foraging everywhere. Like I, I leave the eggs out there so the mothers raise their babies. The mothers forage and give the food to the big. She says, I've never seen this in my life, ever. And she says, I'm sharing this with some farmers around. They said, what? We've yeah. never seen that neither. And I'm like, see, so if you just focus on their needs, you actually see what they are about and all mm. these behaviors and i said you know foraging you don't have to do your beak something anymore you don't have to claw clip anymore you don't have to the only reason you have to train them is to confirm what you're doing works that's mm. it and she started to do this and she had this great training program and stuff to to feel the what is it called the keel oh, or something yeah, yeah, like yeah. the yeah the keel and uh and she said you know Life is so simple now, and it's so mm. cool to watch them. And I say, yeah, so this is how we try to work in the zoological facilities, focusing on the animal's needs. So super cool to watch what she was doing. And that's where that presentation came from. Yeah, no, that's it's it's fascinating. And it's going to be such a interesting transition, especially in agriculture and in the equine world and in, in the domestic animal world as far as like, because, yeah, it's, it's, it's almost like these, it, which is it's funny because a lot of, uh, you know, especially from the nutrition side of things and a lot of the uh, like the science is coming out of the the agriculture world because that's where all the money is, you know, like they're they're funding all the research on cattle and that's being brought to bison and 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 different things like that. And it's it's so interesting that we have this reversal in training enrichment and animal welfare whereas like we feel like in the zoo world that we're 20 years plus ahead of the agriculture world and 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 but you know with a lot of things they're sort of informing our decisions with you know nutrition and, and all sorts of stuff like that so yeah it'll be really interesting to see where everything everything goes with that and it's gonna be a very positive shift you know yeah i i think so i think that's what's gonna happen and that's what we at Spencer we're trying to push mm -hmm. we're trying push and say look you guys you can say you don't have time but at the end you come in a position where you're like ah now we have a behavior issue now we have to fix it well if you thought about that a year ago you would not have that problem mm -hmm. but then you said you don't have time and now you have to well people so it's it's a push it mm -hmm. is something that that's gonna change but you know to be able to do that people need to see that it works and yeah. that's sometimes very hard these days no it is absolutely <laughs> Uh, yes. Yeah, so, so, you know, at Zeus Benceville, you guys do a lot of consulting, but, and you also, you know, have a lot of uh, really cool webinars and courses and all sorts of stuff. I, I've done a few They're They're great. The ones that I've done, do you have sort of common threads or, or like a really popular course that it seems like people are really, uh, you know, struggling with and, and need that help? Is there a sort of common thread with a lot of your consulting, uh, that you do as far as issues that you're look that you help solve? You know, 
first, first of all, what we became very known by was the emergency recall. That's mm. eventually that exploded, that lion thing. That was just like smack. So I've, I've created a whole course about this. It's a self-going course that one is online. Like quite some people already done this. If I do emergency recall webinars, it's, it's quite popular. So that one is, is pretty good. But these days, especially now, we're seeing more zoos. We're seeing more challenges. Like a lot of zoos think we have our challenges, other zoos have theirs. Oh yeah. It's all it's all the same. Everybody has the exact same challenges. Mm -hmm. And that's what we are very much into right now. And I see that in the zoo where I'm working at now, that you know, anticipatory and stereotypy. It's mm -hmm. everywhere. And people say, No, we don't have any problems. Sure. Sure. When we show up and we look, okay, same challenge, same thing. Mm -hmm. It's the same. So, and it's it's a lot about anticipatory behavior. Like so many zoos have anticipatory problems, mm -hmm. you know, and some are very big, some are not very big. So, yeah, and that's what we're now, we're focusing on this now. I'm trying to do some webinars. I just thrown out a vlog on my Patreon about this and how we solved it. But we see that very, very much. And we're trying to really dig very deeply into it. But what we are very good at is, you know, you can know the theory. You know, I know a lot of people that are like PhD behavior. There, like a lot of like, which is fantastic. I love these people. I love mm -hmm. to talk with them to brainstorm and stuff. But what we are trying to do is that, like, because English is not my first language. So if I'm reading that science, it's for me a hard pill to take. Oh, I'm yeah. just like reading and reading and yeah. reading. Trust me, it's it's hard for native English. Sometimes I'm reading those studies in my. I'm like, what <laughs> what are we even talking about here? You know, so. It, it's heavy. And then in Europe, you know, when I worked in Sweden, Sweden also, you know, their English is good. Don't get me wrong. It's very good. But, you know, if you talk about like science English, how I call it, or mm. peer reviewed paper English, mm -hmm. my gosh, hey, it's heavy. So, well, I think what we're very good at now is, you know, take that information, digest this information, put that in an easy language, and then apply it in practice. And, you know, putting the theory into practice, that's what we are what we are doing very much because we can say ah oh, that's anticipatory behavior sure yeah but now the question is okay do we like it do we want to change it and how can we change it now and that's where what we are now very much into like saving time um what is the most important thing for a zookeeper to do mm -hmm. and why is that and that should change and where does anticipatory behavior come from and a very big one this is a little bit controversial a lot of a lot of zookeepers say i'm going to feed my animals i need to feed that that animal. but feeding doesn't exist and that's the mm. interesting thing because you're always reinforcing behavior always right there's no way around it so you're always training at the end but yeah those are some topics that we are very much trying to push forward now and that, that become more um yeah popular so to say yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and I found like from my experience working with other facilities is like a lot of these, uh, you know, from the behavioral husbandry side, it, like a lot of these problems are, you know, I always ask people about their teams, you know, like, oh, their, their enrichment program isn't going very well, or like their animal welfare program isn't, you know, super robust. I'm like, well, does everyone on, uh, your keeping team trained? Does everybody on your keeping team give enrichment? Do they, are they buying into this program? Like, what is the team like? And almost always, wherever there's program, wherever there's problems there, it's because there's team problems and, and human problems going on. And I'd be curious to hear if that's sort of what you've found as well with a lot of these programs. 
everywhere everywhere it's all about you know the the animals are a reflection how the team functions yeah that's what it is so if the animals do not function the team doesn't function it's that simple mm -hmm. so if, if i have here people like we're training a lot of like base uh, basic behaviors such as come to the trainer wherever we are so we can now we are busy with like uh, having the mixed species exhibit on the savannah and you have the the giraffe stable which is separate from the zebra stable and and, and such so to open everything up we need to be able to call the zebras out of the giraffe stable for example so we're training all of this but you know to be able to do that i i need to look at the whole team how does everybody work and set one line and then when it goes wrong all i have to do is ask the team okay how often do you call the animals how often do you call the animals and how often do you call the animals and then because they're not on one line well there's your problem people mm -hmm. i don't have to look at how the, how you do it mm -hmm only this it's a reflection of that and that's with everything but like all the time yeah continuously and that is something that i'm i'm trying to change a lot i'm trying to work with a lot but it's uh it's a it's a it's a challenge you know it, it's a it's it's a pretty big challenge so but yeah we're getting there yeah no and it's yeah it's interesting because you know when you start consulting for these kind of things like you think you're going to be working with uh, animals and, and mainly talking to animals but all you're doing is talking to uh talking to people mostly and uh that's why you know it does work online a lot of the time because yeah you're, you're sitting down and you're trying to figure out these team dynamics and and what these things are, are aren't so if you're you know you're listening and you're having some sort of uh behavioral husbandry program sit down with your team and and think figure out what everyone else is doing because that's that's usually almost always the problem you know for for sure and you know to to give a tip onto this please be objective like mm. please be objective don't start to point fingers with no i know better than you don't start to point fingers about, but my experience is more than you. It's not about this. Mm. It's all about, hey, what the animals do is a reflection of us. So let's let's make it clear. You know what? Let's all go this way. Uh, I've been in situations where I disagreed with that way, but because all other 10 went that way, you know, then I'll go as well. Otherwise, yeah. we never solve it. Yeah. So, you know, and a very big message, and that is something that I see in any zoo, please let, let your ego at home please oh, yeah. and just look yeah. objectively to problems mm -hmm. and not because you know better or you think you know better no it's not about that it's all about we see a behavior and it, it, it keeps on coming back and all we can say now that behavior keeps on coming back because there's a reinforcer in the environment that that's facts we are talking about now mm -hmm. so you know and talking about well i feel that the animal feels like no stop <laughs> yeah please stop it's not working that way objectively mm -hmm. that's what we have to do and that's sometimes very hard for people but only then you can solve problems yeah no i couldn't agree more that's one of my biggest pet peeves especially when people are talking about animal behaviors and they the way that it, they're being interpreted and is is just not objective at all and it's so much bias and you know you have a responsibility as the the keeper for that animal, you know, you know, you're the you're the animal's advocate. You're their voice. You're there. You have to communicate the animal's needs mm. to the people that you know are need are needed to support that animal. So if you are being if you're not being objective, if you're you know, there's there's been plenty of situations where people have maybe not been very honest as far as like evaluating the animal because they're worried about the repercussions of that or the way that looks on them, and that's just not not helpful for anybody at all.
Yeah. It's the same thing there, you know, that we, we, we always say, you know what, have you, have you made the welfare of that animal better today? And I'm not mm. talking about, well, yeah, I put a football there. No, we're talking about the five domains here. Have you made it better today? And if you have to think about this, you probably haven't. Mm-hmm. So that's the, that's the number one. Then we talk about, all right, so, you know, so you're saying that the animal is not happy. Then I will ask that person right away, has the person that sits in that animal came out of that animal to tell you it's not happy? And if the person says no, well, how do you know it's not happy then? Right. So, and then teaching them like, look, like for me, it's so difficult to tell you how I feel. It's so hard. Mm-hmm. And then you have to picture in your mind how that would be. And a lot of times you're wrong anyway. Mm-hmm. And then we are humans. We speak the same language. We, yeah. we, we have the same body language. We understand how we look at one another. Mm-hmm. We, you know, all these traits. So if we can do that, who are we to think that we understand that tiger? Mm-hmm. Who yeah. are we? Yeah. You know, so, and one of the big things that we then say in our, in our workshops and presentations is like, look, people, you're saying it's happy. Now you see a behavior which you interpret as an animal being happy. Mm-hmm. I might interpret that behavior as something else. Mm-hmm. And we both might be right. Yeah. It's not about that. Mm-hmm. It's not about interpreting it, it's, it's happy or not. No, it's about I see that behavior. Is that good or not? Do we want to decrease it or increase it? Is it okay? Yes or no? That's the question. Not about it's happy, it's angry, it's boring. It is. We yeah. don't know. No, and and you don't. And often it takes so much uh, like context to actually dig down and see, like if that's a happy behavior, if that animal is in a state of being in a positive sort of welfare state. Or, or not, because a lot of the times, like behave, one-off behaviors don't really mean a whole lot. And sometimes behaviors can be the same for, you know, multiple different situations. Like, you know, I, I, I like, uh, I like houseplants. I have a lot of different houseplants at home and, and a lot of plants, they will like flower, for instance, when they are in, in they're they're happy, quote unquote, you know, like they, all the conditions are perfect. They're reproducing, they've got their flowers out. But they'll also flower when they're about to die because it's a last ditch effort. You know, they're like, I need to pass on my genetics before I die because the situation is terrible. And if you just looked at that flower and you said, hey, this this plant's doing great, but the environmental conditions are actually killing it and it's about to die. So it's flowering, you know, so I I sort of think about it like that, like this one off behavior or this this sort of. Uh, thing that you're seeing might appear to be one thing, but you really need to look at all of the the whole picture, the whole environment, the whole situation to really get an idea about that. Well, it's a very important thing that you say that because like, you know, for us to understand the negative, we have to understand the positive and that's why it goes wrong very often. Mm -hmm. So, you know, animal welfare is based on the negative. Hey, I see this, which is not good. I see that, which is not good, but we do not talk about. So what is good then? Mm-hmm. What are the animals' needs then? What is the foraging time? What is the time budget? What is, you know, I remember seeing a, a presentation about giraffe. And the giraffes is like, uh, is it about 75%? I don't remember the percentage, but a high percentage of foraging. Mm-hmm. There is not any zoo in this world that reaches that percentage. Yeah. So then they also ruminate an X amount of percentage. So at the end, I thought, I, I think you might end up with like, 
85 or 90, 90% of foraging and ruminating together. And then the other 10, 20% is the locomotion, the sleeping and the social behavior. Nobody is reaching that percentage of foraging. So what are giraffes gonna do? You have lameness because they, mm. they walk the same things. You have, you know, nutrition intake is not enough. They start to lick poles continuously. They have this crib mm. biting, how they call it in the horse world. Yeah, yeah. And it's all because you do not reach their needs, which should give positive welfare. Mm -hmm. So what are we going to do? We're going to make their current uh, feeding things more difficult. No, we should just give them more and more and continuously and more mm -hmm. to be able to reach that goal. So, and, and that's, I sometimes think that's where it goes wrong because a lot of, a lot of keepers with, with all respect to those guys, but they think about, we have to solve it like this. Okay. We have to now train our animals for, well, hoof care is a very hot topic these days, but yeah. let's train our, our animals for that hoof stock. Oh, sorry. Uh, hoof care. Sure. But have you ever thought about their needs? Are the nutritional needs met? Because maybe that's why their hoofs are so long. Is the 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 like locomotion is that met? Because otherwise they will have long um, hoofs because it doesn't tear it down, you know. And sure, there are situations like uh, when we were in the Frankfurt. There was a presentation about a giraffe that that broke something in its foot so it, it it grown not the way it should have grown so it could not tear it off properly so now it grown very long mm. sure these instances are different then but to be able to say something is negative you also have to understand what is the positive side then right you know and, and i think that that's sometimes where it's not like we scream too quickly about a problem while we never understood what its needs are then. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Really getting to know your animal and getting to know them as individuals and getting to really gathering that, that whole picture is, yeah, the most, most important thing when it comes to solving these sort of welfare related problems for sure. You know, definitely. And then not even to talk about the fact that many animals not even fit in the zoos. Yeah. You know, they look 100%. fit, but they are not fit whatsoever. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Zero. And that already gives problems. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's that's huge. And, uh, you know, one of the things I wanted to, to shift uh, briefly away from, uh, you know, animal welfare and maybe touch on a little bit of uh, human welfare because... Uh, you know, you, you see a lot, a lot of, uh, um, zookeeping groups and in the industry as a whole, like there's a lot of people with experiencing burnout and, and a lot of, you know, um, you know, uh, mental health challenges with this industry, it, you know, compassion fatigue, all those things. One of the things that I've found extremely beneficial, and now that we're sort of friends on, uh, you know, our personal social media, as I see that you, you know, run marathons and, and, uh, you're, you're a triathlete and stuff like that. Uh, how have you found, you know, athletics to be as far as beneficial to your career and to how you're sort of, you know, coping with these challenges that a lot of people are, are struggling with? Because I found athletics uh, to be extremely beneficial. So I'd love to hear your um, thoughts on that. And sorry for the right turn in the conversation, but I, I would. Uh, <laughs> Don't worry. It's a hot topic these days. Yeah. The thing is that, you know, I'm very much into animal welfare, very, very much. And I'm in so much into animal welfare that, you know, it hurts me a lot. So when I mm -hmm. see animals 
in specific states when I see opportunities. I see a lot of opportunities all the time, but the people don't see them. So, and then I'm like, you know what, that animal, if you just did that, then that would already help so much. And, you know, I have this, believe it or not, you know, I've done my therapy time. You know, when I got back to the Netherlands and stuff, I was very, very, like, in a very bad place. I I hit, like, rock bottom a couple of times during that time. And, you know, I went to that, to that therapy. Then I discovered that my empathy was very high, mm. like, very high. So I was like, okay, you know, how do I even deal with this? Because all the time when I see a sad person, my empathy goes up. Mm. And it's so high that I feel bad at home. So I have to pick my battles to who I talk to. So sometimes I have a, I have with my family sometimes or at the zoo as well, where people are just to me like, well, don't you feel with me or something? And I was like, you know what? You know, I know that if I talk with you right now about your issues and I'm tonight, I'm sitting on the couch completely, you know, yeah. like no, no mental energy anymore because I just gave it away. And because I take your problem and I take it into my body, I'm now done. So and I discovered that through the therapy and that was for me very harsh. But then I have the same with animals. So when I see animals being somewhat abused or someone somewhat not taken care of, I feel very bad. And that's also one of the reasons I'm like, you know what? I cannot say to that person what a terrible person is. I can't. It's impossible. You know, that person probably has a hard time too. That person does its best. But if I see that animal, that, that hurts me. So then I'm like, how can I help to change that? How can I help people to see this? So then the thing was that my, like, I never had a burnout. Like, I, I work, like, when I talk to my friends overseas as well, they said, Peter, you work on such a high pace. How mm. do you never have a burnout? They said, I don't know. It's efficiency, I guess. I have no yeah. idea. But I did with various situations that have happened in my life briefly in the last three years, which was an outcome of my past 37 years. Yeah. But you know, I got my therapy. I had it very bad. I, I had specific depression. It, it was very poor, and I'm still sometimes struggling with it. But what I found that, you know, I had to learn to live in the present moment. And through therapy, that's what I've done. And then I started to recognize when do I live in the present moment? And that's what I have to cherish. So one is training animals, working with the animals, looking the animal into its soul, into its eye, just looking at them, working together. That's number one. Number two is my endurance training. So my endurance training started to take a, a, a next level because I discovered, look, I really like triathlon. I'm doing this for about five, six years. The last two years, more serious. Last three years, actually a little bit more serious, but last one and a half year, I have a coach now and stuff, so it's pretty mm. good. But the reason I'm doing this is when I need to run a marathon, I will get to a point where I'm not able to do this anymore. I'm coming to a point where I have to tell myself, Peter, you are hurt. You're physically hurt, but you still have to run seven kilometers to that finish line. So if I can now motivate myself to reach that finish line, I'm mentally stronger than I think. Mm. And that's what, what confirms me. So if I don't do that, I fall back to rock bottom. So I need to have these challenges to confirm myself. Peter, you're doing well. You can actually do an, an, an Ironman distance triathlon. You, you are able to push yourself so hard that 
you know, if you can just do that physical push and that what because it hurts physically very bad if yeah. you water. <laughs> but if you can if you can push that very much, can you then get that push into your mind, into your head to push, say, okay, Peter, it's going well, relax, take it easy. You know what? You don't have to work all the time. You don't have Take it easy sometimes. And if I'm able to do it with my endurance, I found that it reflects for me better to my mental state. Mm-hmm. So that's what I've done. But at the same time, going to reflecting this to work, I can only do so much. And I see a lot of people, a lot of zookeepers, you know, that, that say, yeah, but I've asked 10 times and they do, don't do anything about this. And it's like, okay, but then you probably don't understand the person you asked what his job entails. Mm-hmm. It's not about you being listened to. No, he has a thousand other things. And if you're a zoo with 50 zookeepers and 50 zookeepers ask that to that person, yeah, you cannot expect it to change. But what you can do, and that's something that I'm pushing forward a lot to a lot of zookeepers and stuff what have you done to make it better what can you do without any money to make that life better mm-hmm. have you just grabbed a wheelbarrow in the fall and get all the leaves in the forest forest and dump that into your altar exhibit have you done this mm-hmm. no well why not but you keep on asking for a different substrate while it's right in front of you mm-hmm. and because you don't get money for it you now fall into these burnouts. Mm-hmm. Well, actually, it's for free next to you. Yeah. So, and you know, uh, this was a, this was a story in Sweden. I remember with the birds of prey there, and they told me, "Well, Peter, you know that management stuff." And I said, "Yeah, it, it's not very easy." It's, they understood, and they said to me, "Yeah, we are trying to get our new aviaries for these birds." And I said, like, "All right," but it doesn't happen and stuff. And then I asked them a question. I said, all right, so you want me to go there and talk to them again for you, Avery, so you can train better, right? They say, yeah. I say, imagine. Imagine, now I get the yes. Imagine next month you have new aviaries. Are your birds trained to go to a transport box to move them to different areas from the animal training welfare perspective, yes or no? No, they are not. Okay, and then I said, so you're asking me something, and then I will give that to you, but you're actually not ready to comply to be able to do it. Mm. They say, no. They say, well, so then maybe you should first do that because then you will be in a stronger position to be able to ask this. And then they were like, ah, I never thought about it this way. They say, no, but this does burn you out because mm-hmm. you're continuously talking and don't get anything and don't get anything. Well, you're not ready yourself. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's, yeah, that's huge. And, and, and thank you for, for sharing all that. I think a lot of people will uh, find that super useful, but I think, you know, highlighting, uh, you know, focusing on these sort of, uh, there's like the, uh, the, the idea of like the internal and external locus of control and, you know, focusing on the external locus of control, the things that are happening outside of you that you can't control is a sure way 
for your mental health and for burnout to happen because you can't do anything about these things. It's like, you know, you're stressing because it's going to rain on Saturday. Like it's pointless to, to stress about. It's pointless to fixate on because there's nothing you can do. It's if it's going to rain, it's going to rain. You can't control the weather. You can't control somebody's decisions. A lot of the time you can't control the zoo budget. You can't control, you know, way things are allocated. You can't control contractors. You, there's so many things you can't control. Focus on the things that you can, how you can make their, uh, you know, the animals' lives just a little bit better. What you can do with the, you know, the substrate. What you can do with the reperching. What you can do. There's so much that focusing on that you can do is so beneficial, and that's what I find. You know, even with, and I'm sure you find this with Zuspenseful as well. Like the actual, like wild enrichment is tremendously cathartic for me because it's I can control everything. It's just me. Like if I, it's a hundred percent within my control. I can't control if people, you know, respond to my emails or watch my videos or what, listen to this podcast, but I can control the fact that I'm doing the podcast and I can control the, the, the things that I'm working on. And I think it's the same with things like athletics. You can control, you know, I mean, not always, but you can control like your legs walking up the hill. Like you can like all these things. And it's, it's about focusing on the stuff that, that you can control and, and, and that you can you can make benefit your life. And I think, uh, you know, I'm sure you've found the same thing. Oh, hundred percent, hundred percent. And then, you know, like, and the good thing is I work together with Grant and Grant is in that same way. You know, we are very, very solution focused and we are, yeah, sure. That's a problem. And we're both like, yeah, that's a problem. How are we going to solve it? Well, let's talk about that. What if we go this way or that way instead of like, it's a problem and other people should do this and it's terrible and they're bad. It's like, oh, wait, wait. no, we're going to focus on solutions. And, you know, I've, I've learned this in Sweden, actually, because we had at one point, like three years, like a full, full program going. And they, the, the, like the, the culture that we tried to push through as the animal department. So like the head keeper, like the, the, the the zookeeper boss so to say and then all the supervisors on for each department our goal was any zookeeper can come to us with the problem but they also have to come with the solution mm, mm-hmm. so because it's very easy to throw out problems and it's a very negative spiral you get in yeah because the problem is not solved it's not solved it's not solved so and we're very much like you know what you have a problem we all agree it's a problem we all agree on this but right now with all the projects in the zoo, there's no budget to do something about this. Because, you know, I always say you have shit and you have shit. Yeah. What is more shit? Then that's what we're going to solve. And that's what management mm-hmm. does. That's how they do it. Yeah. But if you never understand their work, then you'll never be able to be like happy with your stuff. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, and the management is bad and this is bad and this is bad. Yeah, but have you ever been in management? No, I've never. Well, wow. <laughs> yeah. you know, okay. So that's easy to talk about then because 50 zookeepers, I'm saying a number now, are complaining up. They also get stuff from up down and mm-hmm. they have to now like juggle this around and choose the best for all individuals, not only for the chimpanzees or not only for these birds, no everything. Mm-hmm. So sure, it's better when they have a, a different indoor enclosure, sure. But... Can we keep that indoor enclosure for another five years? Good, because that indoor enclosure is worse, mm-hmm. which you might not know anything about because you never go there because it's not your department. Yeah. But how you feel is, I'm not listened to. No, that's not the case. 
you are listened to. Yeah. But and that's that's a big thing that we see that we see everywhere. And then we're like, you know what? I keep on asking the people, what have you done then mm-hmm. to change this challenge? Like, I we have these um, Japanese birds here. Like these, uh, I do not even know the English word. I know the Dutch word, but I don't even know the English word. Yeah. Yeah. You know, they, they have these these long legs and this Japanese like white black little red helmet on their head. Okay. Anyway, so those birds and they what they do, they they eat quite some insects and all those things. And it's like, you know what? You know, the, the exhibit looked terrible, especially with the bird flu. It looked horrendous. So now I can keep on complaining, but nobody's doing anything about this, and I'm asking and they don't do anything and whatever, whatever, whatever. I can do this, sure. Mm. But is that gonna change anything? No, it's not. So I'm not gonna wait two years till that changes. Well, I'm gonna eat myself inside out and I'm gonna get into burnouts or whatever. Yeah. It's not gonna help. But what I can do is, why don't I bring a shovel? And then when I'm going to go into that exhibit, I just shovel all the dirt upside down for 10 minutes and I'm leaving again. That's all I'm going to do. How much have I changed the lives of these animals right now? Mm-hmm. And that didn't take a half an hour. That just took 10 minutes. Yeah. That's it. You know, I'll grab a new wheelbarrow of some sand I found somewhere. Dump it in there. What are they going to do? They're going to roll in it. Hey, I'm reaching behavioral needs. It's good for their for their health because of parasites and stuff. Yeah. That's all I have to do. And I changed it already. So I think people are too busy with the stuff that they can't get than with what am I able to do regardless if I cannot get that. Can I do something that changes it? Mm-hmm. And I think that's one of the major reasons people fall into burnouts. Yeah, and, and, I, yeah, stuff. I couldn't agree more. And and you know the approach of, uh, you know, when you're running into a training problem, taking a step back and looking at the situation as a whole is the same way. You know that that you should be if you're feeling frustrated at work, if you're you know dealing with a lot of uh, toxicity at work, taking a step back and why is all this happening? What am I fixating on? How can I make a sort of mindset shift towards what I can do? Uh, yeah, can be absolutely huge for you and your career because being in the, in the, in those places, it happens to everybody. Uh, it's less about avoiding it and more about, you know, moving past it and, and, and dealing with it as it comes. Uh, it can be, yeah, hugely beneficial for, for your career and also your life outside of the career. So, you know, it's, it's super important to do. You know, that's a big one. And I also think on top of this, you know, people, we should stop focusing on others. We should focusing on ourselves. You know, what, mm-hmm. you know, am I actually growing in my job? Am I where I want to be? What can I do to go where I want to be? Like, I've I've been to 12 or 13 conferences. 10 of them, I have to pay myself. That costs me two, 3,000 euros. Mm. But look where I am right now. Yeah. So I'm investing in the future. So now I can complain and my company doesn't pay and they don't, you know, they don't give me anything and whatever. Okay, sure. But it's your growth as well. It's Mm. not just the company's growth. It's your growth. Mm -hmm. So if you want to go, then go. But am I now going to be a a, a, a rotten apple about this? Yeah. Or, you know, so... I, I feel like, what can I do to make myself a better keeper? That's basically mm-hmm. the thing. Well, and then if my company doesn't give me that, then, you know, I also have to look at myself. All right. So 
am I that good then? Shouldn't I be trying to do my a little bit more, trying to do better? Shouldn't I be like talking about training? Like, should I, what if I try to train my animals to work very efficiently? And I'm going to show this to my manager and see like, look, this is what I all can do. So I can clean better. I can make it better. I can do all of this better. Mm-hmm. How likely will it be now that they say, that's a good job. Don't you like to go to a workshop there or there or there? Mm-hmm. You know, that's the outcome of this too. You know, if you never complain, and that's a big thing as well. We see that in the zoo too. People that complain all the time, they drag other people down as oh, well. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You know, and if that happens, then that's a, a, a toxic system comes in now. Mm-hmm. No, hey, well, whatever people. Yeah, it's terrible. I agree. But what are we going to do about it? How are we going to change this? Can we change this? Should we look into this instead of like, yeah, you're right. It's terrible. Yeah, you're right. It's mm-hmm. terrible. Now, all of a sudden, I have to do every day a marathon because I can't yeah. deal <laughs> No, absolutely. And the crazy thing about that toxic stuff is like, you don't even realize when it's taking a hold of you. Like, because there's been times in my career where I'm like, have like, I go to someone and I'm, I'm shit talking on like a high level, you know? And like, I, and I take a step back, like mid conversation. I'm like, what am I doing? Like I'm being the person that, that I've hated in my career so many times. You don't even realize that it's happening to you, you know? So taking a step back and being objective with these kind of things. Yeah. It's huge. Cause it can, it can happen. And, and it, it's human nature to, to want to do these things, you know? And, and that's it. And, you know, in my career, I also, you know, I, I have a pretty strong, like my passion is very extreme. Some people say, but you know, I'm also that person that say we have a problem with the animal's behavior or whatever. And then I can either say we have a problem, whatever, but I'm that person that will then start proving it. It's like, all right, then I'll take my data out of it. You know, I see it today at four o'clock. That's what's happening. I see that for a week now at four o'clock, I see that behavior. I film it, whatever. See, now I have the data to prove my point Mm. instead of, I think my animal is unhappy because of this, this and that. Sure. Yeah. What is your point? What, what, you know, so... And using the data, the same as like, um, we need to change that animal's welfare due to this, this, and that. And they're like, okay, but is that a thought you have? Is that, and I'm that person that will be like, okay, you know what? Here, you have like 20 different research papers about that animal welfare with the same outcome that we should give our animals indoors, outdoors, all day long. And this is what, what it is about. If you now tell me, no, the animals won't care, hello, I just gave you like 20 studies mm-hmm. and that make the, made it the fact that they do care. So yeah, here you go. Yeah. And now, and now I have a different discussing point than when I say, well, I think this, sure, sure. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, and, and, and that's, that's a big thing. And, and, you know, working through that, again, coming back to the depression burnouts and all that stuff, I really do think that because we focus too much on I'm not listened to or whatever. No, you are listened to. People just decided to take another route, mm-hmm. which is another big one because we have a lot of people here too in our zoo that, you know, I've seen it in many zoos. You know, they come with an idea and then I'm like, you know what? Yeah, yeah, good idea. But I still go the other way. But the fact that I go the other way, the people feel like I've not been listened to. No, I considered your idea and it's a good idea, but I still think we should go that way instead. That doesn't mean I haven't listened to you. Yeah. You know, and that's for people of confirmation. I've not been listened to because they went the other way anyway. Mm-hmm. So why should I even say my ideas? 
Yeah. No, it's an idea. It's yeah. not something you oblige people to do. No, it's mm -hmm. an idea which is listen. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. Well, because I find people so often they have their ideas and their beliefs, especially, uh, you know, around the people that aren't, you know, maybe training and, and doing enrichment and they're like, quote unquote, old school you know, they have this, these ideas and these beliefs and that sort of makes up their like identity. And that's like a dangerous place to be. Like you don't want your ideas. Cause like, you know, if I present an idea to you and yeah, you go another way, but you say, Hey, like, this is why I went the other way. Like if you're not married to that idea, if that's not part of your identity, you go, Oh yeah, that makes sense. Let's, let's give that a try. Like that's the correct sort of uh, you know, uh, reaction to that. Whereas if that's, that's in your identity and that's, that's what you're sort of, uh, identifying as, as far as like, that's, you know, part of your personality, then yeah, you're going to get offended and you're going to be like, well, you know, this is my entire belief system and, and, and all that. So it's, yeah, you gotta, in, in the world, in a world of animal care, that's changing as rapidly as it is. You have to, you have to have ideas, but you can't be, you can't be just married to them. They can't be a, a part of your identity. It's, it's, it's a dangerous place to be. Uh, for sure and you know what's a big thing as well you know dare to say to yourself yeah maybe he has a point mm -hmm. maybe i'm wrong maybe i know some i do not know something he knows hey maybe i should look a little bit more into this mm -hmm. instead of directly go into his defense mode and you know because you you didn't get your coffee in the morning and everything is bad all of a sudden yeah. no i'm but you know beside the fact that everybody is different you know everybody works it differently like i'm very mm -hmm. passionate about i will change it if that takes me two years i'm gonna change that animal's life i don't care and mm -hmm. some people do not have that have that patience in that sense but i get it people get these burns i understand and it's very easy for me to talk about how i talk about it but being myself in like a pretty good depression i'm still trying to work through it you know, it, it's it, at the end, exactly like you say, Kyle, I can only control what I can control. I cannot control anything else. Mm -hmm. So at the end, I've done my part. That's all I can do. If it doesn't change and I don't feel happy here anymore, then you might ask yourself, maybe I should go elsewhere. Mm -hmm. Then that's your answer. If your answer is, Hey, I will talk to the to my boss manager, whatever, and will find a way to make myself feel better because that's step number one. Make you feel better so you can take better care of your animal. Well, then that's the step. Mm -hmm. You know, so now and I have to say, I'm not sure how that is in Canada, but in Europe we have like especially now here in the Netherlands, we have um uh, um what is it called? Like company doctors. And what that mm -hmm. means is is that a company is connected to a doctor so if there's something wrong with you you can go to the doctor and stuff if you have a mental health issue it's actually being considered and you can actually go you know eventually into that therapy from out your work as well so there's a lot of like good stuff here in europe happening and we're considering very much like your mental health and all that stuff i also know that uh, in the us for example that's a lot less it's less considered yeah um you know, here in in in, uh, in the Netherlands, if I'm going to therapy, like part of it is part of my insurance. So yeah. that's very nice for me as well. Um, in some cases in Canada, you have to pay the full price of two, three hundred dollars to go for a one hour mm. therapy. Session. So that makes it hard too. 
and if you have your burnout and you're sitting at home and you have to pay like uh, like a, a, a therapy yourself with a wage which is sometimes also quite discussable if you know yeah, what i mean yeah then i get it it's a double stress on top of that your car is broken it's a double stress so and and i'm just talking about your work environment mm -hmm. for me here and sweden was even better if you're in a mental health situation your work will help you you will go to into your insurance system i had my therapies my all that stuff and i only paid like 25 euros which is equivalent to mm. what is it maybe 30 dollars yeah yeah, something like that, yeah. Be, you know we did pay more taxes so that also doesn't help don't get me wrong it also doesn't help that you need three jobs to you know to, to do your thing and if then your passion you're not happy with your passion you i get it i get it completely and that's why we are pretty okay here in europe in that sense mm -hmm. but that's why i think you have to protect yourself more than what you think you do you can't control yeah. leave it you cannot control it i cannot control how you feel i cannot control somebody else i, I do not even know what they think or whatever we are all different take it easy people sit on the couch take a breath take a glass of wine relax and try to just chill yeah because and well, i chill with triathlon so <laughs> it's yeah yeah no i'm the same way and yeah it's it's uh yeah you have to you have to figure out you know how to uh what works for you and and it might not be what works for everybody else i don't think we're going to be seeing a bunch of triathlon converts from this this yeah. podcast but uh you know we might you might find the thing you got to find some stuff that can uh that can get you through these things and uh that can yeah you got to take care of yourself so you know thank you so much peter for talking about all this i think we covered a lot of ground it, it sounds like we could probably do another a couple episodes of this uh this podcast in, in in no time um it was awesome talking to you i'll, I'll link zeus Spenceful and and social media accounts uh in the show notes for everybody to check out i would recommend uh checking out zeus Spenceful. it's uh, a fantastic resource that i'm sure many of you already know about uh do you have any sort of last minute plugs or anything else that you'd uh, like like to add uh, yeah, not really. I just want to throw out, you know what, you know, I hope that this whole story also about like training and stuff, but also about like these depression stories that that's going to help other people because you're not alone out there. That's the mm -hmm. thing. And how we work with it, you know, just, just stay strong. If all I have to say, I, you know, it's, uh, you can control yourself and try to find solutions on your problems and don't only come with problems because you will, you will fall into a negative spiral. Um, nine out of ten times you're already training just recognize that you do so and that's all we can do you know so that's all i have to say really <laughs> <laughs> yeah no that's uh that's awesome this was a fantastic episode and i thank you so much for for coming on it was great uh this will be you know one of many chats i'm sure we will have uh in the years to come so uh thank you so much peter and uh, keep doing all the great work that you do Thank you very much, Scott. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thank you, everybody. And until next time. We hope you enjoyed that episode of the Wild Enrichment Podcast. If you want to follow us on social media, you can find us at Wild Enrichment on Instagram, Facebook, and Pinterest. If you want to learn more about Wild Enrichment and see some of our great resources, check out www.wildenrichment.com. Also, if you wish to support Wild Enrichment, check out our Patreon. 
Again, thank you so much for listening. Until next time. Wild Enrichment is independently owned and claims no affiliation to any zoo, aquarium, or other animal care institutions. All of the information and opinions communicated through this podcast, wildenrichment.com, and affiliated social media accounts are based on my own opinions and experiences and are not in any way reflective of the opinions of my employers past or present. Thank you.